Some years ago, while visiting, or rather exploring, Notre Dame, the author of this book discovered in an obscure corner of one of the towers this word carved upon the wall, Ananke. These Greek characters, black with age and cut deep into the stone with the peculiarities of form and arrangement common to Gothic calligraphy that marked them the work of some hand in the Middle Ages, and above all the sad and mournful meaning which they expressed, forcibly impressed the author. He questioned himself. He tried to divine what sad soul was loath to quit the earth without leaving behind this brand of crime or misery upon the brow of the old church. Since then, the wall has been whitewashed or scraped, I have forgotten which, and the inscription has vanished. For this is the way in which, for some two hundred years, we have treated the wonderful churches of the Middle Ages. They are mutilated in every part, inside as well as out. The priest whitewashes them, the archdeacon scrapes them. Then come the people, who tear them down. So, save for the frail memory which the author of this book here dedicates to it, Nothing now remains of the mysterious word engraved upon the dark tower of Notre Dame, nothing of the unknown fate which it summed up so sadly. The man who wrote that word upon the wall faded away many ages since, amidst passing generations of men. The word, in its turn, has faded from the church wall. The church itself, perhaps, will soon vanish from the earth. Upon that word, this book is based. March 1831 Notre Dame de Paris by Victor Hugo Book One, Chapter One, The Great Hall Three hundred and forty-eight years, six months, and nineteen days ago today, the Parisians were waked by the sound of loud peals from all the bells within the triple precincts of the city, the university, and the town. And yet, the 6th of January, 1482, is not a day of which history takes much note. There was nothing extraordinary about the event which thus set all the bells and the citizens of Paris agog from early dawn. It was neither an attack from the Picards or the Burgundians, nor some shrine carried in procession, nor was it a student revolt in the Ville de Las, nor an entry of our greatly to be dreaded lord the king, nor even the wholesale slaughter of a band of thieves before the palace of justice. Neither was it the arrival, so frequent during the fifteenth century, of some plumed and laced embassy. It was scarcely two days since the last cavalcade of this sort, that of the Flemish ambassadors, empowered to arrange a marriage between the Dauphin and Margaret of Flanders, had entered Paris, to the great annoyance of Cardinal Bourbon, who, to please the king, was forced to smile upon all this rustic rout of Flemish burgomasters, and to entertain them at his own mansion with, quote, a very fine morality and farce, unquote while a driving rainstorm drenched the splendid tapestries at his door. That which, quote, stirred the emotions of the whole populace of Paris, unquote, as Jean de Troyes expresses it, on January 6th, was the double festival, celebrated from time immemorial, of Epiphany and the Feast of Fools. Upon that day there was to be a bonfire at the Greve, a maypole at the Brack Chapel, and a mystery or miracle play at the Palace of Justice. All these things had been proclaimed at the crossroads, to the sound of trumpets, by the provost's men, in fine coats of purple camlet, with big white crosses on the breast. A crowd of citizens with their wives and daughters had therefore been making their way from every quarter, towards the places named, ever since early dawn. Each had decided for himself in favor of the bonfire, the maypole, or the mystery. It must be confessed, to the glory of the proverbial good sense of Parisian idlers, that the majority of the crowd turned towards the bonfire, which was most seasonable, or towards the miracle play, which was to be performed in the great hall of the law courts, 
well-roofed, in and between four walls, and that most of the pleasure-seekers agreed to leave the poor maypole with its scanty blossoms to shiver alone beneath the January sky in the cemetery of the Brack Chapel. The people swarmed most thickly in the avenues leading to the law courts, because it was known that the Flemish ambassadors, who arrived two nights before, proposed to be present at the performance of the miracle play and election of the Lord of Misrule, which was also to take place in the Great Hall. It was no easy matter to make a way into the Great Hall upon that day, although it was then held to be the largest enclosure under cover in the world. To be sure, Sauval had not yet measured the Great Hall of the castle at Montargis. The courtyard, filled with people, looked to the spectators at the windows like a vast sea, into which five or six streets, like the mouths of so many rivers, constantly disgorged new waves of heads. The billowing crowd, growing ever greater, dashed against houses projecting here and there like so many promontories in the irregular basin of the court. In the middle of the lofty Gothic façade of the palace was the great staircase, up and down which flowed an unending double stream, which, after breaking upon the intermediate landing, spread in broad waves over its two side slopes. The great staircase, I say, poured a steady stream into the courtyard, like a waterfall into a lake. Shouts, laughter, and the tramp of countless feet made a great noise and a great hubbub. From time to time the hubbub and the noise were redoubled. The current which bore this throng towards the great staircase was turned back, eddied, and whirled. Some archer had dealt a blow, or the horse of some provost officer had administered a few kicks to restore order. An admirable tradition, which provost has bequeathed to constable, constable to marshalsea, and marshalsea to our present Parisian police. At doors, windows, in garrets, and on roofs swarmed thousands of good plain citizens, quiet, honest people, gazing at the palace, watching the throng, and asking nothing more. For many people in Paris are quite content to look on at others, and there are plenty who regard a wall behind which something is happening as a very curious thing. If it could be permitted to us men of 1830 to mingle in fancy with those 15th-century Parisians, and to enter with them, pushed, jostled, and elbowed, the vast hall of the Palace of Justice, all too small on the 6th of January, 1482, the sight would not be without interest or charm, and we should have about us only things so old as to seem brand new. With the reader's consent, we will endeavor to imagine the impression he would have received with us in crossing the threshold of that great hall, amidst that mob in surcoats, cassocks, and coats of mail. And first of all, there is a ringing in our ears, a dimness in our eyes. Above our heads, a double roof of pointed arches, wainscoted with carved wood, painted in azure, sprinkled with golden fleur-de-lis. Beneath our feet, a pavement of black and white marble, laid in alternate blocks. A few paces from us, a huge pillar, then another. In all, seven pillars down the length of the hall, supporting the spring of the double arch down the center. Around the first four columns are tradesmen's booths, glittering with glass and tinsel. Around the last three, oaken benches worn and polished by the breeches of litigants and the gowns of attorneys. Around the hall, along the lofty wall, between the doors, between the casements, between the pillars, is an unending series of statues of all the kings of France, from Pharamond down, the sluggard kings, with loosely hanging arms and downcast eyes, the brave and warlike kings, with head and hands boldly raised to heaven. Then, in the long pointed windows, glass of a thousand hues, at the wide portals of the hall, rich doors, finely carved. And the whole, arches, pillars, walls, cornices, wainscot, doors, and statues, covered from top to bottom with a gorgeous coloring of blue and gold, 
which, somewhat tarnished even at the date when we see it, had almost disappeared under dust and cobwebs in the year of grace 1549, when Dubreuil admired it from tradition. Now let us imagine this vast oblong hall, lit up by the wan light of a January day, taken possession of by a noisy, motley mob who drift along the walls and ebb and flow about the seven columns, and we may have some faint idea of the general effect of the picture, whose strange details we will try to describe somewhat more minutely. It is certain that if Raviac had not assassinated Henry IV, there would have been no documents relating to his case laid away in the Rolls office in the Palace of Justice, no accomplices interested to make away with said documents, accordingly no incendiaries, forced, for want of better means, to burn the Rolls office in order to burn up the documents, and to burn the Palace of Justice in order to burn the Rolls office. Consequently, therefore, no fire in 1618. The old palace would still be standing, with its great hall. I might say to my reader, go and look at it, and we should thus both of us be spared the need, I of writing and he of reading, an indifferent description. Which proves this novel truth, that great events have incalculable results. True, Raviac may very possibly have had no accomplices, or his accomplices, if he chanced to have any, need have had no hand in the fire of 1618. There are two other very plausible explanations. First, the huge, quote, star of fire, a foot broad and a foot and a half high, unquote, which fell, as everyone knows, from heaven upon the palace after midnight on the 7th of March. Second, Theophile's verses, quote, in Paris, sure, it was a sorry game, when, fed too fat with fees, the frisky dame Justice set all her palace in a flame. Unquote. Whatever we may think of this triple explanation, political, physical, and poetical, of the burning of the Palace of Justice in 1618, one unfortunate fact remains, namely, the fire. Very little is now left, thanks to this catastrophe, and thanks particularly to the various and successive restorations which have finished what it spared. Very little is now left of this first home of the King of France, of this palace, older than the Louvre, so old even in the time of Philip the Fair, that search had to be made for traces of the magnificent buildings erected by King Robert and described by El Galdus. Almost everything is gone. What has become of the chancery office, St. Louis' bridal chamber? The garden where he administered justice, quote, clad in a camlet coat, a sleeveless surcoat of linsey woolsey, and over it a mantle of black serge, reclining upon carpets with Joinville, unquote. Where is the chamber of the Emperor Sigismond, that of Charles IV, and that of John Lackland? Where is the staircase from which Charles VI issued his Edict of Amnesty, the flagstone upon which Marcel slew, in the Dauphin's presence, Robert of Clermont and the Marshal of Champagne, the wicket gate where the bulls of Benedict the Antipope were destroyed, and through which departed those who brought them, coped and mitred in mockery, thus doing public penance throughout Paris, and the great hall, with its gilding, its azure, its pointed arches, its statues, its columns, its great vaulted roof thickly covered with carvings, and the golden room, and the stone lion which stood at the door, his head down, his tail between his legs, like the lions around Solomon's throne, in the humble attitude that befits strength in the presence of justice. And the beautiful doors, and the gorgeous windows, and the wrought ironwork which discouraged Bicornet, and Duancy's dainty bits of carving. What has time done, what have men done, with these marvels? What has been given us in exchange for all this, for all this ancient French history, all this Gothic art? 
the heavy elliptic arches of Monsieur de Brosse, the clumsy architect of the Saint-Gervais portal. So much for art. And for history, we have the gossipy memories of the big pillar still echoing and re-echoing with the tittle-tattle of the patru. This is not much. Let us go back to the genuine great hall of the genuine old palace. The two ends of this huge parallelogram were occupied, the one by the famous marble table, so long, so broad, and so thick, that there never was seen, as the old court rolls express it, in a style which would give Gargantua an appetite, quote, such another slice of marble in the world, unquote. The other, by the chapel in which Louis XI had his statue carved kneeling before the Virgin, and into which, wholly indifferent to the fact that he left two vacant spaces in the procession of royal images, he ordered the removal of the figures of Charlemagne and Saint-Louis, believing these two saints to be in high favor with heaven as being kings of France. This chapel, still quite new, having been built scarcely six years, was entirely in that charming school of refined and delicate architecture, of marvelous sculpture, of fine deep chiseling, which marks the end of the Gothic era in France, and lasts until towards the middle of the sixteenth century in the fairy-like fancies of the Renaissance. The small rose window over the door was an especial masterpiece of delicacy and grace. It seemed a mere star of lace. In the center of the hall, opposite the great door, a dais covered with gold brocade, placed against the wall, to which a private entrance was arranged by means of a window from the passage to the gold room, had been built for the Flemish envoys and other great personages invited to the performance of the mystery. This mystery, according to custom, was to be performed upon the marble table. It had been prepared for this at dawn. The superb slab of marble, scratched and marked by lawyers' heels, now bore a high wooden cage-like scaffolding, whose upper surface, in sight of the entire hall, was to serve as stage, while the interior, hidden by tapestry hangings, was to take the place of dressing-room for the actors in the play. A ladder placed outside with frank simplicity formed the means of communication between the dressing-room and stage, its rough rounds doing service for entrance as well as exit. There was no character, however unexpected, no sudden change, and no dramatic effect, but was compelled to climb this ladder. Innocent and venerable infancy of art and of machinery. Four officers attached to the palace, forced guardians of the people's pleasures on holidays as on hanging days, stood bolt upright at the four corners of the marble table. The play was not to begin until the twelfth stroke of noon rang from the great palace clock. This was doubtless very late for a theatrical performance, but the ambassadors had to be consulted in regard to the time. Now, this throng had been waiting since dawn. Many of these honest sightseers were shivering at earliest daylight at the foot of the great palace staircase. Some, indeed, declared that they had spent the night lying across the great door, to be sure of getting in first. The crowd increased every moment, and like water rising above its level, began to creep up the walls, to collect around the columns, to overflow the entablatures, the cornices, the window sills, every projection of the architecture, and every bit of bold relief in the carvings. Then, too, Discomfort, impatience, fatigue, the day's license of satire and folly, the quarrels caused ever and anon by a sharp elbow or a hobnailed shoe, the weariness of waiting, lent, long before the hour when the ambassadors were due, an acid, bitter tone to the voices of these people, shut up, pent in, crowded, squeezed, and stifled as they were. On every hand were heard curses and complaints against the Flemish, the mayor of Paris, Cardinal Bourbon, the palace bailiff, Madame Margaret of Austria, the ushers, the cold, the heat, the bad weather, 
the Lord of Misrule, the columns, the statues, this closed door, that open window. All to the vast amusement of the group of students and lackeys scattered through the crowd, who mingled their mischief and their malice with all this discontent, and administered, as it were, pinpricks to the general bad humor. Among the rest there was one group of these merry demons, who, having broken the glass from a window, had boldly seated themselves astride the sill, distributing their glances and their jokes by turns, within and without, between the crowd in the hall and the crowd in the courtyard. From their mocking gestures, their noisy laughter, and the scoffs and banter which they exchanged with their comrades from one end of the hall to the other, it was easy to guess that these young students felt none of the weariness and fatigue of the rest of the spectators, and that they were amply able, for their own private amusement, to extract from what they had before their eyes a spectacle quite diverting enough to make them wait patiently for that which was to come. "'By my soul, it's you, Joannes Frollo de Molendino,' cried one of them to a light-haired little devil, with a handsome but evil countenance, who was clinging to the acanthus leaves of a capital. You are well named, Jean de Moulin, for your two arms and your two legs look like the four sails fluttering in the wind. How long have you been here? By the foul fiend, replied Joannes Frollo, more than four hours, and I certainly hope that they may be deducted from my time in purgatory. Here I'm going to do a little abridging because what follows is several pages of riotous student rabble-rousing, most of which I find to be lost to time and translation. Returning to the story. Meanwhile, the licensed copyist to the university, Master André Mounier, leaned towards the ear of the furrier of the king's robes, Master Gilles Le Cornu. I tell you, sir, this is the end of the world. The students never were so riotous before. It's the cursed inventions of the age that are ruining us all. Artillery, bombards, serpentines, and particularly printing, that other German pest. No more manuscripts, no more books. Printing is death to bookselling. The end of the world is at hand. So I see by the rage for velvet stuffs, said the furrier. At this instant, the clock struck twelve. "'Ha!' cried the entire throng, with but a single voice. The students were silent. Then began a great stir, a great moving of feet and heads, a general outbreak of coughing and handkerchiefs. Everybody shook himself, arranged himself, raised himself on tiptoe, placed himself to the best advantage. Then came deep silence. Every neck was stretched, every mouth was opened wide, Every eye was turned towards the marble table. Nothing was to be seen there. The four officers still stood stiff and motionless as four colored statues. Every eye turned towards the dais reserved for the Flemish ambassadors. The door was still shut and the dais empty. The throng has been waiting since dawn for three things, noon, the Flemish embassy, and the mystery. Noon alone arrived punctually. Really, it was too bad. They waited one, two, three, five minutes, a quarter of an hour. Nothing happened. The dais was still deserted, the theater mute. Rage followed in the footsteps of impatience. Angry words passed from mouth to mouth, though still in undertones, to be sure. The mystery, the mystery was the low cry. Every head was in a ferment. A tempest, as yet but threatening, hung over the multitude. Jean de Moulin drew forth the first flash. The mystery, and to the devil with the Flemish, he shouted at the top of his voice, writhing and twisting around his capital like a serpent. The crowd applauded. The mystery, repeated the mob, and deuce take Flanders. We insist on the mystery at once, continued the student, or else it's my advice to hang the palace bailiff by way of a comedy and morality. Well said, cried the people, and let us begin the hanging with his men. 
Loud cheers followed. The four poor devils began to turn pale and to exchange glances. The mob surged towards them, and the frail wooden railing parting them from the multitude bent and swayed beneath the pressure. It was a critical moment. To the sack with them! To the sack! was the cry from every side. At that instant, the hangings of the dressing-room, which we have already described, were raised, giving passage to a personage the mere sight of whom suddenly arrested the mob, changing rage to curiosity as if by magic. Silence! Silence! This person, but little reassured, and trembling in every limb, advanced to the edge of the table with many bows, which, in proportion as he approached, grew more and more like genuflections. However, peace was gradually restored. There remained only that slight murmur always arising from the silence of a vast multitude. "'Sir citizens,' said he, "'and fair citizenesses, we shall have the honor to declaim and perform before His Eminence the Cardinal a very fine morality entitled The Wise Decision of Mistress Virgin Mary.' I am to enact Jupiter. His Eminence is at this moment escorting the very honorable embassy of His Highness the Duke of Austria, which is just now detained to listen to the speech of the rector of the university at the donkey's gate. As soon as the most eminent cardinal arrives, we will begin. It is plain that it required nothing less than the intervention of Jupiter himself to save the poor unfortunate officers of the bailiff. If we had had the good luck to invent this very truthful history, and consequently to be responsible for it to our lady criticism, the classic rule, nec deus intercit, no God should intervene, could not be brought up against us at this point. Moreover, Lord Jupiter's costume was very handsome, and contributed not a little to calm the mob by attracting its entire attention. Jupiter was clad in a brigadine, covered with black velvet, with gilt studs. On his head was a flat cap, trimmed with silver gilt buttons. And had it not been for the paint and the big beard which covered each a half of his face, had it not been for the roll of gilded cardboard, sprinkled with spangles, and all bristling with shreds of tinsel which he carried in his hand, and in which practiced eyes readily recognized the thunder— had it not been for his flesh-colored feet, bound with ribbons in Greek fashion, he might have stood favorable comparison, for severity of bearing, with any Breton archer in the Duke of Berry's regiment. Chapter 2. Pierre Gringoire But as he spoke, the satisfaction, the admiration excited by his dress, were destroyed by his words, and when he reached the fatal conclusion— as soon as the most eminent cardinal arrives, we will begin. His voice was drowned in a storm of hoots. "'Begin at once! The mystery! The mystery at once!' screamed the people. And over all the other voices was heard that of Joannes de Molendino, piercing the uproar, like the fife in a charivari at Nîmes. "'Begin at once!' shrieked the student. "'Down with Jupiter and Cardinal Bourbon!' shouted Robin Pouspan, and the other learned youths perched in the window. "'The morality this instant!' repeated the mob. "'Instantly! Immediately! To the sack and the rope with the actors and the cardinal!' Poor Jupiter, haggard, terrified, pale beneath his paint, let his thunderbolt fall, and seized his cap in his hand. Then he bowed, trembled, and stammered out, his eminence, the ambassadors, Madame Margaret of Flanders. He knew not what to say. In his secret heart he was mightily afraid of being hanged. Hanged by the populace for waiting, hanged by the cardinal for not waiting. On either hand he saw a gulf, that is to say, a gallows. Luckily, someone appeared to extricate him from his embarrassing position and assume the responsibility. An individual, standing just within the railing, in the vacant space about the marble table, and whom nobody had as yet observed, 
so completely was his long, slim person hidden from sight by the thickness of the pillar against which he leaned. This individual, we say, tall, thin, pale, fair-haired, still young, although already wrinkled in brow and cheeks, with bright eyes and a smiling mouth, clad in black serge, worn and shining with age, approached the table and made a sign to the poor victim. But the latter, in his terror and confusion, failed to see him. The newcomer took another step forward. Jupiter, said he, my dear Jupiter. The other did not hear him. At last, the tall, fair-haired fellow, growing impatient, shouted almost in his ear, Michel Giborne. Who calls me, said Jupiter, as if suddenly wakened. I, replied the person dressed in black. Ah, said Jupiter. Begin directly, continued the other. Satisfy the public. I take it upon myself to pacify the bailiff, who will pacify the cardinal. Jupiter breathed again. Gentlemen and citizens, he shouted at the top of his lungs to the crowd who continued to hoot him, we will begin at once. Plaudite, Chivis. Clap, citizens, cried the students. Noel, Noel, cried the people. Deafening applause followed, and the hall still trembled with the plaudits when Jupiter had retired behind the hangings. But the unknown person who had so miraculously changed the tempest to a calm, as our dear old Cornet says, had modestly withdrawn into the shadow of his pillar, and would doubtless have remained there, invisible, motionless, and mute as before, had he not been drawn forward by two young women, who, placed in the foremost rank of the spectators, had observed his colloquy with Michel Giborne, Jupiter. Master, said one of them, beckoning him to come nearer. Be quiet, my dear Leonard, said her neighbor, pretty, fresh, and emboldened by all her Sunday finery. That is no scholar, he is a layman. You must not call him master, but sir. Sir, said Leonard. The stranger approached the railing. What do you wish of me, young ladies? he asked eagerly. Oh, nothing, said Leonard, much confused. It is my neighbor Gisquette Lagencienne who wants to speak to you. Not at all, replied Gisquette, blushing. It was Leonard who called you master. I told her that she should say sir. The two young girls cast down their eyes. The stranger, who desired nothing better than to enter into conversation with them, looked at them with a smile. Then you have nothing to say to me, young ladies? Oh, nothing at all, answered Gisquette. The tall, fair-haired youth drew back a pace, but the two curious creatures had no idea of losing their prize. Sir, said Gisquette hastily, with the impetuosity of water rushing through a floodgate, or a woman coming to a sudden resolve. So you know that soldier who is to play the part of Madame Virgin in the mystery? You mean the part of Jupiter, replied the unknown. Oh, yes, said Leonard. Isn't she silly? So you know Jupiter? Michel Giborne, replied the unknown. Yes, madam. He has a fine beard, said Leonard. Will it be very interesting, what they are going to recite up there? asked Gisquette shyly. Very interesting indeed, replied the stranger, without the least hesitation. What is it to be? said Leonard. The wise decision of Madame Virgin Mary. A morality, if you please, madam. Ah, that's another thing, replied Leonard. A short pause followed. The stranger first broke the silence. It is quite a new morality, which has never yet been played. Then it is not the same, said Gisquette, that was given two years ago, on the day of the legate's arrival, and in which three beautiful girls took the part of... Sirens, said Leonard. And all naked, added the young man. Leonard modestly cast down her eyes. Gisquette looked at her and did the same. He continued with a smile. That was a very pretty sight. This, now, is a morality, written expressly for the young Flemish madam. 
"'Will they sing pastorals?' asked Gisquette. "'Fie,' said the stranger. "'In a morality, you must not mix up different styles. "'If it were a farce, that would be another thing.' "'What a pity,' replied Gisquette. "'That day there were wild men and women at the Ponceau Fountain "'who fought together and made all sorts of faces, "'singing little motets and pastorals all the while.' "'What suits a legate,' said the stranger, somewhat dryly, "'will hardly suit a princess.' "'And close by them,' added Leonard, "'were several bass instruments which played grand melodies. "'And to refresh the passers-by,' continued Gisquette, "'the fountain streamed wine, milk, and hippocras "'from three mouths for all to drink who would.' "'And a little way beyond that fountain,' went on Leonard, "'at the Trinity,' There was a passion play, performed by mute characters. How well I remember it, exclaimed Gisquette. God on the cross, and the two thieves to right and left. Here the young gossips, growing excited at the recollection of the arrival of the legate, both began to talk at once. And farther on, at the painter's gate, there were other persons richly dressed. And at the fountain of the holy innocents, that hunter chasing a doe, with a great noise of dogs and hunting-horns, and at the Paris shambles, those scaffolds representing the fortress at Dieppe. And when the legate passed by, you know, Gisquette, there was an attack, and all the English had their throats cut. And over against the Châtelet gate there were very fine persons. And on the money-broker's bridge, which was hung all over with tapestries. And when the legate passed by, they let loose more than two hundred dozen of all sorts of birds. It was very fine, Leonard. It will be finer today, replied their listener at last, seeming to hear them with some impatience. Then you promise us that this play will be a fine one, said Gisquette. To be sure, he answered. Then he added, with a certain emphasis, Young ladies, I am the author of it. Really? said the young girls, much amazed. Really, replied the poet, drawing himself up. That is, there are two of us, Jean Marchand, who sawed the planks and built the frame and did all the carpenter's work, and I, who wrote the piece. My name is Pierre Gringoire. The author of The Cid could not have said Pierre Cornet with any greater degree of pride. Our readers may have noticed that some time had already passed since Jupiter had gone behind the hangings, and before the author of the new morality revealed himself so abruptly to the simple admiration of Gisquette and Leonard. Strange to say, all that multitude, which a few instants previous was so furiously uproarious, now waited calmly for the fulfillment of the actor's promise, which proves that enduring truth still verified in our own theatres, that the best way to make your audience wait patiently is to assure them that you will begin directly. However, student Joannes was not asleep. Hello! Ho! he cried out suddenly, in the midst of the calm expectation which followed on confusion. Jupiter! Madam Virgin! Devilish mountebanks! Are you mocking us? The play! The play! "'Begin, or we will stir you up again.' "'This was quite enough. "'The sound of musical instruments pitched in various keys "'was heard from the interior of the scaffolding. "'The tapestry was raised. Four characters, painted and clad in motley garb, "'came out, climbed the rude stage ladder, "'and, gaining the upper platform, "'ranged themselves in line before the public, bowing low. "'Then the symphony ceased.' The mystery was about to begin. These four personages, having been abundantly repaid for their bows by applause, began, amid devout silence, a prologue which we gladly spare the reader. Moreover, as happens even nowadays, the audience was far more interested in the costumes of the actors than in the speeches which they recited, and to tell the truth, they were quite right. They were all four dressed in gowns partly yellow and partly white, which only differed from each other in material. The first was of gold and silver brocade, 
the second of silk, the third of wool, the fourth of linen. The first of these characters had a sword in his right hand, the second two golden keys, the third a pair of scales, the fourth a spade. And to aid those indolent understandings which might not have penetrated the evident meaning of these attributes, might be read embroidered in big black letters, on the hem of the brocade gown, I am nobility. On the hem of the silk gown, I am religion. On the hem of the woolen gown, I am trade. And on the hem of the linen gown, I am labor. The sex of the two male allegories was clearly shown to every sensible beholder by their shorter gowns and by their peculiar headdress, a flat cap called a cromignol, while the two feminine allegories, clad in longer garments, wore hoods. One must also have been willfully dull not to gather from the poetical prologue that labor was wedded to trade and religion to nobility and that the two happy pairs owned in common a superb golden dolphin, which they desired to bestow only on the fairest of the fair. They were therefore journeying through the world in search of this beauty, and having in turn rejected the Queen of Golconda, the Princess of Trebizond, the daughter of the Cam of Tartary, etc., labor and religion, nobility and trade, were now resting on the marble table in the Palace of Justice, spouting to their simple audience as many long sentences and maxims as would suffice the faculty of arts for all the examinations, sophisms, determinances, figures, and acts required of all the bachelors in taking their degrees. All this was indeed very fine." but in the crowd upon whom the four allegorical personages poured such floods of metaphor, each trying to outdo the other, there was no more attentive ear, no more anxious heart, no more eager eye, no neck more outstretched than the eye, the ear, the neck, and the heart of the author, the poet, the worthy Pierre Gringoire who could not resist, a moment previous, the delight of telling his name to two pretty girls. He had withdrawn some paces from them, behind his pillar, and there he listened, looked, and enjoyed. The kindly plaudits which greeted the opening lines of his prologue still rang in his innermost soul, and he was completely absorbed in that kind of ecstatic contemplation with which an author watches his ideas falling one by one from the actor's lips amid the silence of a vast assembly. Good Pierre Gringoire. We regret to say that this first ecstasy was very soon disturbed. Gringoire had scarcely placed his lips to this intoxicating draught of joy and triumph, when a drop of bitterness was blended with it. A ragged beggar, who could reap no harvest, lost as he was in the midst of the crowd, and who doubtless failed to find sufficient to atone for his loss in the pockets of his neighbors, hit upon the plan of perching himself upon some conspicuous point in order to attract eyes and alms. He therefore hoisted himself, during the first lines of the program, by the aid of the columns of the dais, up to the top of the high railing running around it. And there he sat, soliciting the attention and the pity of the multitude by the sight of his rags and a hideous sore which covered his right arm. Moreover, he uttered not a word. His silence permitted the prologue to go on without interruption, and no apparent disorder would have occurred if ill-luck had not led the student Joannes to note the beggar and his grimaces from his own lofty post. A fit of mad laughter seized upon the young rogue, who, regardless of the fact that he was interrupting the performance and disturbing the general concentration of thought, cried merrily, "'Just look at that impostor asking alms!' Anyone who has thrown a stone into a frog pond or fired a gun into a flock of birds can form some idea of the effect which these incongruous words produced in the midst of the universal attention. Gringoire shuddered as at an electric shock. The prologue was cut short, 
and every head was turned in confusion towards the beggar, who, far from being put out of countenance, regarded the incident as a good occasion for a harvest, and began to whine, with an air of great distress, his eyes half-closed. Charity, kind people. Why, upon my soul, continued Joannes, it is Clopin Troyfou. Hello there, my friend. Did you find the wound on your leg inconvenient, that you have transferred it to your arm? So saying, with monkey-like skill, he flung a small silver coin into the greasy felt hat which the beggar held with his invalid arm. The beggar accepted the alms and the sarcasm without wincing, and went on in piteous tones, Charity, kind people. This episode greatly distracted the attention of the audience, and many of the spectators, Robin Pouspin and all the students at their head, joyfully applauded the odd duet, improvised in the middle of the prologue by the student with his shrill voice and the beggar with his imperturbable whine. Gringoire was much displeased. Recovering from his first surprise, he began shouting to the characters on the stage, "'Go on! What the deuce! Go on!' not even condescending to cast a look of scorn at the two interrupters. At this moment he felt himself pulled by the hem of his surtout. He turned, in rather an ill humor, and had hard work to force a smile, as he needs must do. It was the fair arm of Gisquette la Gencienne, which, passed through the rails, thus entreated his attention. "'Sir,' said the young girl, "'will they go on?' "'Of course,' replied Gringoire, quite shocked at the question. "'In that case, sir,' she went on, "'would you have the kindness to explain to me what they are going to say?' interrupted Gringoire. "'Well, listen.' "'No,' said Gisquette, "'but what they have already said.' Gringoire started violently, like a man touched on a sensitive spot. "'Plague take the foolish, stupid little wench,' he muttered between his teeth. From that moment, Gisquette was lost in his estimation. However, the actors had obeyed his command, and the public, seeing that they had begun to speak again, again began to listen, not without necessarily losing many beauties from this kind of rough joining of the two parts of the piece, so abruptly dissevered. Gringoire brooded bitterly over this fact in silence. Still, Quiet was gradually restored, the student was silent, the beggar counted a few coins in his hat, and the play went on. It was really a very fine work, and one which it seems to us might well be made use of today, with a few changes. The plot, somewhat long and somewhat flat, that is, written according to rule, was simple, and Gringoire, in the innocent sanctuary of his innermost soul, admired its clearness. As may be imagined, the four allegorical characters were rather fatigued after traversing three-quarters of the globe without managing to dispose of their golden dolphin creditably. Thereupon ensued fresh eulogies of the marvelous fish, with a thousand delicate allusions to the young lover of Margaret of Flanders, then very sadly secluded at Amboise, and little suspecting that labor and religion, nobility and trade, had just traveled around the world for his sake. The aforesaid Dauphin was young, was handsome, was strong, and especially, magnificent source of all royal virtues, he was the son of the Lion of France. I declare that this bold metaphor is admirable, and that the natural history of the theater— on a day of allegories and royal epithalamia, is not to be alarmed at the thought of a dolphin being the son of a lion. It is just these rare and pindaric mixtures which prove the degree of enthusiasm. Nevertheless, to play the critic, we must confess that the poet might have managed to develop this beautiful idea in less than two hundred lines. True, the mystery was to last from noon until four o'clock, by the order of the provost. Something must be done to fill up the time. Besides, the people listened patiently. 
all at once, in the very middle of a quarrel between Mademoiselle Trade and Madame Nobility, just as Master Labor pronounced this wonderful line, Ne'er saw the woods a beast more beautiful. The door leading to the platform, which had hitherto remained so inopportunely closed, was still more inopportunely opened, and the ringing voice of the usher abruptly announced, His Eminence, Cardinal Bourbon. Chapter 3. The Cardinal Poor Gringoire! The noise of all the big cannon crackers fired on St. John's Day, the discharge of twenty crooked arquebuses, the report of that famous serpentine of the Tower of Billy, which, during the siege of Paris on Sunday, September 29, 1465, killed seven Burgundians at one shot, the explosion of all the gunpowder stored at the temple gate would have rent his ears less rudely at that solemn and dramatic moment than did those few words dropping from the mouth of an usher. His Eminence, Cardinal Bourbon. Not that Pierre Gringoire feared the cardinal, or scorned him. He was neither so weak nor so conceited. A genuine eclectic, as he would be called nowadays, Gringoire was one of those firm and lofty, calm and temperate souls, who always contrive to choose a happy medium, and who are full of sense and liberal philosophy, although they have a high regard for cardinals. Precious and perpetual race of philosophers, to whom, as to another Ariadne, wisdom seems to have given a guiding clue, which they have gone on unwinding from the beginning of the world, as they journeyed through the labyrinth of human things. They are to be found in every age, ever the same, that is, always in harmony with the age. And, to say nothing of our Pierre Gringoire, who would represent them in the fifteenth century if we could succeed in portraying him as he deserves, it is assuredly their spirit which animated Father Dubreuil in the sixteenth, when he wrote these simple and sublime words, worthy of all the ages. Quote, I am a Parisian in nationality, and a Parisian in speech, Parisia being a Greek word signifying freedom of speech, the which I have used even towards the cardinals, uncle and brother to the Prince of Conti, always with due respect for their greatness, and without offending any man among their followers, which is much." Unquote. The disagreeable effect which the cardinal produced on Pierre Gringoire, therefore, partook neither of hatred nor of scorn. Quite the contrary. Our poet had too much good sense and too threadbare a coat not to attach especial value to the fact that many an allusion in his prologue, and particularly those in glorification of the Dauphin, son of the Lion of France, might be heard by a most eminent ear. But interest is not the all-powerful in the noble nature of poets. Let us suppose the entity of the poet to be represented by the number ten. It is certain that a chemist, who should analyze and pharmacopoeize it, as Rabelais says, would find it to be composed of one part self-interest to nine parts of self-esteem. Now, at the moment that the door was thrown open to admit the cardinal, Gringoire's nine parts of self-esteem, swollen and inflated by the breath of public admiration, were in a state of abnormal development, before which the imperceptible molecule of self-interest, which we just now discovered in the constitution of poets, vanished and faded into insignificance, precious ingredient though it was, the ballast of reality and humanity, without which they would never descend to earth. Gringoire enjoyed feeling, seeing, handling, as it were, an entire assembly, of rascals, it is true, but what did that matter? They were stupefied, petrified, and almost stifled by the incommensurable tirades with which every portion of his epithalamium bristled. I affirm that he himself partook of the general beatitude, and that, unlike La Fontaine, who, on witnessing a performance of his own comedy, The Florentine, inquired, What clown wrote that rhapsody? Gringoire would fain have asked his neighbor, 
whose is this masterpiece? You may judge of the effect produced on him by the abrupt and untimely arrival of the cardinal. His fears were but too soon realized. The entrance of his eminence distracted the audience. Every head was turned towards the platform. No one listened. The cardinal, the cardinal, repeated every tongue. The unfortunate prologue was a second time cut short. The cardinal paused for a moment on the threshold. While he cast an indifferent glance over the assembly, the uproar increased. Everyone wished to get a better view of him. Everyone tried to see who could best stretch his neck over his neighbor's shoulders. He was indeed a great personage, and one the sight of whom was well worth any other spectacle. Charles, Cardinal Bourbon, Archbishop and Count of Lyon, Primate of the Gauls, was at the same time allied to Louis XI through his brother, Pierre, Lord of Beaujeu, who had married the eldest daughter of the king, and allied to Charles the Bold through his mother, Agnes of Burgundy. Now, the dominant feature, the characteristic and distinctive trait in the character of the primate of the Gauls, was his courtier-like spirit and his devotion to those in power. It is easy to imagine the countless difficulties in which his double kinship had involved him, and all the temporal reefs between which his spiritual bark had been forced to maneuver, lest it should founder upon either Louis or Charles, that Charybdis and that Scylla which had swallowed up the Duke of Nemours and the Constable of St. Paul. Heaven be thanked, he had escaped tolerably well from the voyage, and had reached Rome without accident. But although he was safe in port, and indeed because he was safe in port, he never recalled without a tremor the various haps and mishaps of his political life, so long full of alarms and labors. He was therefore wont to say that the year 1476 had been to him both black and white, meaning that in one and the same year he had lost his mother, the Duchess of Bourbonnais, and his cousin, the Duke of Burgundy, and that one loss had consoled him for the other. However, he was a very good fellow. He led a joyous life as cardinal, cheered himself willingly with the royal wine of Chaillot, was not averse to Richard la Garmoise and Thomas la Sayard, preferred to bestow alms upon pretty maids rather than aged matrons, and for all these reasons was very agreeable to the populace of Paris. He always went surrounded by a small court of bishops and priests of lofty lineage, gallant, jovial, and fond of feasting on occasion, and more than once the good devotees of Saint-Germain-d'Auxerre, as they passed by night beneath the brightly lighted windows of Bourbon's house, had been scandalized on hearing the same voices which had sung vespers for them that day, now chanting to the clink of glasses the Bacchic adage of Benedict III, that pope who added a third crown to the tiara. Bibamus papaliter. It was undoubtedly this popularity, so justly acquired, which saved him on his entrance from any unpleasant reception on the part of the mob, so malcontent but a moment before, and but little inclined to respect a cardinal on the very day when they were to elect a pope. But Parisians are not given to hoarding up grudges, and then, by insisting that the play should begin, the good citizens had shown their authority thus getting the better of the cardinal, and this triumph sufficed them. Besides, Cardinal Bourbon was a remarkably handsome man. He had a very gorgeous red robe, which was most becoming, which is as much to say that all the women, and consequently the better half of the audience, were on his side. Certainly, it would have been unjust and in very bad taste to hoot a cardinal for being late at the play when he is handsome and wears his red robe gracefully. He entered, therefore, bowed to the assembly with the hereditary smile of the grandee to the people, and walked slowly towards his scarlet velvet armchair with an air of being absorbed in thoughts of far other things. His escort, or what we should now call his staff of bishops and priests, flocked after him upon the dais, 
not without renewed curiosity and confusion on the part of the groundlings. Every man tried to point them out and name them. Every man knew at least one among them, this one, the Bishop of Marseilles, Allodet, if I remember rightly, that one, the Dean of Saint-Denis, another, Robert de Lespinasse, abbot of Saint-Germain-des-Prés, the libertine brother of one of the mistresses of Louis XI, all with endless mistakes and mispronunciations. As for the students, they swore roundly. It was their day, their feast of fools, their Saturnalia, the annual orgies of the Bessoche and the schools. No iniquity but was allowable and sacred upon that day. And then there were plenty of giddy girls in the crowd. Simone Quatre-Livres, Agnès Lagadine, Robine Piedebout. Was it not the least that they could do to swear at their ease and blaspheme a little on so fine a day in so goodly a company of churchmen and courtesans? Neither were they slow to seize the opportunity, and in the midst of the uproar came a terrific outburst of oaths and obscenities from their lawless lips. The lips of a set of students and scholars restrained all the rest of the year by their dread of the hot iron of Saint-Louis. Poor Saint-Louis! How they set him at defiance in his own palace of justice! Each of them selected from the newcomers on the dais a black or gray, a white or purple gown for his own especial victim. As for Joannes Frollo de Molendino, in his quality of brother to an archdeacon, he boldly attacked the red cassock, and bawled at the top of his voice, fixing his impudent eyes full on the cardinal. Capa, repleta, mero. All these details, boldly set down here for the edification of the reader, were so covered by the general noise and confusion that they were lost before they reached the dais, besides which, the cardinal would have paid but little heed to them had he heard them. The license of that particular day was so well established a fact in the history of public morals. He had, moreover, and his countenance showed how fully it absorbed him, quite another care following him closely, and stepping upon the platform almost at the same moment as himself, namely, the Flemish embassy. Not that he was much of a politician, or that he troubled himself much about the possible results of the marriage of his cousin, Lady Margaret of Burgundy, with his cousin Charles, Dauphin of Vienna. He cared very little about the duration of the friendship patched up between the Duke of Austria and the King of France, or about the King of England's opinion of the slight put upon his daughter, and he tested the royal vintage of Chaillot every evening, without suspecting that a few flasks of that same wine, slightly doctored and improved by Dr. Coitier to be sure, cordially presented to Edward IV by Louis XI, would one fine day rid Louis XI of Edward IV. The very honorable embassy of the Duke of Austria brought none of these cares to the cardinal's mind, but it troubled him in another way. It was indeed rather hard, and we have already spoken a word in regard to it in an earlier page of this book, to be forced to welcome and entertain he, Charles of Bourbon, these nondescript citizens. He, a cardinal, to condescend to aldermen. He, a Frenchman and a boon companion, to befriend Flemish beer-drinkers, and that in public, too. This was assuredly one of the most painful farces he had ever been compelled to play for the king's pleasure. Still, he turned to the door with the best grace in the world, so well had he trained himself when the usher announced in ringing tones, the envoys from the Duke of Austria. Needless to say that the entire audience did the same. They entered, two by two, with a gravity in vivid contrast to the lively ecclesiastical escort of Charles of Bourbon. The forty-eight ambassadors of Maximilian of Austria, headed by the Reverend Father in God, Jean, Abbot of Saint-Bartin, Chancellor of the Golden Fleece, and Jacques de Goy, Lord of Dobie, High Bailiff of Ghent. A profound silence fell upon the assembly, 
followed by stifled laughter at all the absurd names and all the commonplace titles which each of these personages calmly transmitted to the usher, who instantly hurled names and titles pell-mell and horribly mangled at the heads of the crowd. Lisa speaking for a second. Rather than hurling these names at you and horribly mangling them, I'm going to let you go look at the names yourself if you choose to, and skip right past them. Bailiffs, aldermen, burgomasters, burgomasters, aldermen, bailiffs, all stiff, starched, and straight-laced, dressed in their Sunday best of velvet and damask, wearing flat black velvet caps on their heads with large tassels of gold thread from Cyprus. Honest Flemish figures after all, severe and dignified faces, of the race of those whom Rembrandt portrayed so gravely and forcibly against the dark background of his night watch. Personages, every one of whom bore it written upon his brow that Maximilian of Austria was right in confiding fully, as his proclamation had it, in their good sense, valor, experience, loyalty, and good qualities. But there was one exception— this was a man with a cunning, intelligent, crafty face, the face of a monkey combined with that of a diplomatist, to meet whom the cardinal stepped forward three paces, bowing low, and yet who bore a name no more high-sounding than Guillaume Rim, counselor and pensionary of the town of Ghent. Few persons there knew what Guillaume Rim was, a rare genius, who in time of revolution would have appeared with renown in the foremost rank, but who in the fifteenth century was reduced to the lowest intrigues, and to living by sapping and mining, as the Duke of Saint-Simon expresses it. However, he was appreciated by the greatest sapper in Europe. He planned and plotted with Louis XI on familiar terms, and often laid his hand on the king's secret necessities. All these things were utterly unknown to this throng, who marveled at the politeness shown by the cardinal to this scurvy Flemish bailiff.